What do I do when I'm worried that something is wrong with my kid? How do I know if my kid is developing okay? These are questions I hear a lot. Today, we're talking about what do you do when you're concerned that your kid might have a delay, a deficit, or a developmental difference. At least once a month, I get a call from a friend about this who has concerns about their child. So in this episode, I'm going to be talking to you just like I talk to my friends. This is just one short podcast episode. I'm certainly not going to be able to cover absolutely every aspect of developmental differences and delays and what to do and what not to do, but I'm going to try to keep it simple and straightforward and give you some resources to get started. Hi, this is Danae. I'm the founder of Simple Families. Simple Families is an online community for parents who are seeking a simpler, more intentional life. In this show, we focus on minimalism with kids, positive parenting, family wellness, and decreasing the mental load. My perspectives are based in my firsthand experience raising kids, but also rooted in my PhD in child development. So you're going to hear conversations that are based in research, but more importantly, real life. Thanks for joining us. So I'm not kidding when I say I get a call from a friend, a real life friend, at least once a month who has concerns about their kid. And without fail, that friend always feels like they're the only one. It can be a scary thing to talk about, a scary thing to share, frankly, just a scary thing to say out loud when you have concerns about your kid. Sometimes we spend a lot of time thinking about these concerns, never voicing them, maybe talking about them with our partners but not being really sure what to do with the information, what the next best step is, or if there should even be a next step. In last week's episode, we talked about ADHD and motherhood, and I made a comment in that episode that there are a lot of people with ADHD or ADHD tendencies, characteristics of ADHD, who listen to the podcast. And that's not a coincidence. Simple living and minimalism is hugely attractive and beneficial for people who are neurodivergent and for people who are parenting kids who are neurodivergent. And what does neurodivergent mean? We're going to talk about that. When I announced that I was going to be talking about this, I got a message from a mother that I did a coaching session with several years ago. She and her husband had just had their first baby. I think he just had turned one and they were having trouble with aggressive behavior. He was hitting, pushing, We've stayed in touch over the years and become friends. It's been five years now. And when I announced that I was going to be covering this topic, she messaged me and said, you know what I keep going back to? What life would be like trying to parent a child with Tourette's and not having simplified four years ago? So I said to her, you know why you were attracted to simplicity though, right? And she said, because I knew. And there's a good chance you did not end up at Simple Families due to a mere coincidence. More likely, you're here because there was an intuitive sense of knowing that you needed this, that your kids needed this. And I think that comment right there, because I knew, will resonate with so many people listening today. Often, we know before we really know. There's a deep level of knowing within our intuition that many, maybe most parents experience when their kid does have a developmental difference or a developmental delay. I tend to be very nosy and ask a lot of personal questions and working with a lot of families with neurodiverse kids over the years, I have asked this question a lot. When did you know? When did you know there was something different? And 
I would say generally about 40% say in the first year before the first birthday. The other 40% say in the first three years before the third birthday. And then about 20% were clueless until the kid was much older. And that data is absolutely anecdotal and estimated. But what I'm getting at here is that many, many, if not most parents have a gut feeling about a child that may be neurodivergent. So let's talk about what it means to be neurodivergent versus neurotypical. The more kids I meet, the less I buy into the idea that there even is such a thing as neurotypical. Neurotypical implies that a brain learns, behaves, and processes normally. Normally. That's a pretty loaded word. The range of developmental milestones and expectation for kids reaching developmental milestones is so vast. And because that range is so wide, kids develop so differently on such different timelines, putting them into a box that is either normal or abnormal is very difficult to do. But these words essentially do that. Neurotypical or neurodivergent. A person who's labeled neurodivergent is when someone's brain learns, behaves, or processes the world differently than what is considered quote-unquote normal. These variations sometimes have labels. For example, ADHD, autism, sensory processing disorder, OCD, Tourette's, dyslexia, auditory processing disorder, anxiety, other specific learning disabilities like dyscalculia, which is a math disorder, dysgraphia, which is a writing disorder. The list is huge. I didn't cover them all. How do you know when to get help? Those fears, the worries that you have within your brain, how do you know when to take the next step, to say them out loud, to reach out for help? I'll start by telling you what is not the next best step. It is not the next best step for you to self-blame and feel guilt for what you have done and what you haven't done thus far. The next best step is to start right where you are today, not dwelling on what didn't happen yesterday. We talked a little bit about the gut feeling. The gut feeling is huge. It's not something to ignore. As the parent, you are an expert on your kid. So your gut feeling is valuable and often very accurate. Next, family history. Most neurodiverse conditions have a hereditary component. Now, they aren't all directly passed down. You may have a parent with ADHD that has a child with autism that then goes on and has a child with OCD. When a new child is born, the wiring does not look identical to the parents. The wiring can be different. That wiring may come with different symptoms and different behaviors and a different diagnosis. So when you're looking at family history, think about not just the parents, you and your partner, but also think about your siblings, your partner's siblings, your kids' aunts and uncles, your kids' cousins, your parents, the grandparents. Are there any history of diagnoses? Are there any history of challenges in school, challenges with behavior, challenges with substance use? Okay, I think we've covered pretty much 99.9% of all families out there with those three, right? When you're looking at family history, you're not just considering people within your family that have had diagnoses, but also people who have had symptoms that maybe were undiagnosed. You have a kid that's having a hard time learning to read, and the kid's dad also had a hard time learning to read. That's family history. It doesn't have to be the kid's dad had a diagnosis of dyslexia. It could just be that the kid's dad had a hard time learning how to read. So gut feeling, family history, teacher reports. 
This part is really tricky because teachers don't always speak up when they have concerns. Understandably so. I often think teachers that speak up are very brave because the parents on the receiving end aren't always open to hearing what they have to say. They're not always ready to hear what they have to say. Having a child with developmental differences can often be experienced like a loss for parents. The loss of your idealizations of things that you had hoped for your child. Now that's not to say none of those hopes are going to come true, but sometimes there can be fear around that. And with this loss, often parents go through the five stages of grief, denial and isolation, anger, bargaining, depression, and finally acceptance. Teachers who are talking to parents about developmental concerns for the first time may face parents who are in the denial stage or in the anger stage. Teachers who've had a pattern of getting responses from family that include anger and denial are going to be more reluctant to share concerns when they come up. So if you have a teacher that shares concerns, I would look at that as a good thing. If you have a teacher that says there are no concerns, I wouldn't leave it at that. If you have a gut feeling, if you have a family history or one or the other, we talked a couple episodes back in the performance reviews episode about teacher conferences. And I think if you do have some underlying concerns, some gut feelings around this, I think you need to lead when you're talking with teachers. Lead with, I have concerns about my son's dot, dot, dot. If you open that door, the teacher may be more likely to engage in the conversation and to express their true feelings. But try not to wait for teachers to bring it up. Because like I said, sometimes it can be very scary for teachers to do that. They're not always met with open, receptive parents. As a teacher, you never know what stage of grief that parent might be in. They may not be ready to hear these things and they may be met with anger and hostility. The final thing that I think you should consider when knowing whether to take the next step and get some evaluations would be pediatrician concerns. Have you talked to your pediatrician about it? What does your pediatrician think? Now, again, I don't think this should be limiting because if you have a gut feeling about it, if you have a family history, if you have teacher reports or any one of these three things and your pediatrician is kind of pish-poshing it and not making a thing of it, you can still go on and get a second opinion. You can get other evaluations. Some pediatricians are wonderful and tuned into behavior and development and others really see kids once or twice a year and focus on the medical piece. So it really depends on your pediatrician, the relationship that you have, and how often they see your child. So at what age should you have a child evaluated or assessed? The general consensus is that earlier is better. Because in the early years, the brain is more neuroplastic or malleable to change. Some things can be diagnosed earlier than others. Autism can be diagnosed in the toddler years. ADHD tends to be diagnosed more once kids enter school age, somewhere around the ages of six or seven. Auditory processing disorder isn't diagnosed until seven. Just because diagnoses aren't made until later doesn't mean you don't see the symptoms earlier. Doesn't mean that you don't see the characteristics with an earlier onset. So if you have a child that's much younger than that, you can still be talking to your pediatrician and to the teachers, having other professionals keep their eyes and ears out. So how do you proceed? Let's talk a little bit about mindset. You know, I shared that often parents go through the stages of grief in this process, and it feels a bit like a loss. It can feel like your child is broken. And if you feel like that, it's important to work on your mindset. So 
you proceed with the knowledge that your child has a brain that is uniquely wired. Try to imagine the electrical wiring in your house. Every single house is wired differently. There are some basics that are applied across the board, right? All the wiring goes back to the main electric box. Circuits have to be a loop. Okay, I don't know. I'm making stuff up right now. (laughs) I don't know anything about electricity. But in general, every house is shaped differently. Every house is going to be wired differently. There's some things that are going to be consistent across the board, though. If you have a child that is wired differently, the wiring is not broken. The electricity is not shut off. There is still plenty of power and functioning. The wiring just doesn't look the way that the electrician expected it to look. So your job is to figure out what does the wiring look like and how do I support that wiring so it can function to the best of its potential. A house that has some areas of weak wiring, you're never going to take out all the wiring and start completely fresh. You're going to figure out what the areas are that need some extra strength and support, and then you're going to bring in resources for that. Here's the tricky part. There is no x-ray vision. There's no x-ray vision that tells you what brain wiring looks like. You have to look at the symptoms and the behaviors to make predictions about what sort of wiring is going on in there. It's all very scientific, but at the same time, not very scientific because most neurodivergence is identified based on symptoms and behaviors, not x-rays and blood tests and MRIs, although sometimes those are involved too. So let's talk about who do we go to when we think that our kids might be wired differently. A lot of this is going to depend where you are in the world and on your budget. I'm going to be talking mostly about here in the U.S. I know this differs across the world. The place that most parents start is the pediatrician's office. The pediatrician will sometimes refer out for speech therapy or occupational therapy, or maybe even to see a neurologist. My personal opinion is that you should see a developmental pediatrician, especially if you have a very young child. A developmental pediatrician will follow your child and see them a couple times a year to help track their development and also give suggestions about interventions. They have more advanced training in child development and behavior and they're gonna be an extra touch point. So this is someone you generally develop an ongoing relationship with. Now the next stop can be going through your school district to get assessments. The public school systems here in the US can test kids ages zero and up at no cost. Even if your kid doesn't even attend public school, you could have a homeschool kid or a private school kid. The public school district still has to test them. And that testing is going to look for some of the differences namely ones that affect the academic performance, like reading challenges and math challenges and writing challenges and spelling challenges, that sort of thing. Now, the school cannot diagnose. If the school sees a child that has a reading challenge, they may call it a reading disorder rather than dyslexia. A school psychologist is a great resource to start with, especially because within the U.S. it's free. But if you have a child that is a bit older six or seven entering school age, you may consider taking them to a neuropsychologist. A neuropsychologist is someone that you're really only going to see once. Well, you're going to see them for testing that may take a couple of days, but it's kind of a one and done type of relationship. A neuropsychologist tests for learning disabilities, developmental differences. They look at all the pieces of the puzzle and figure out all the strengths and weaknesses. They do lots and lots of different types of testing. So while a school psychologist might say that your child has a reading disorder, a neuropsychologist might say that your child has dyslexia. Now, dyslexia, because it's a label, sounds scarier than a reading disorder. Calling it one thing or the other doesn't dictate the severity. 
It's just calling it one thing or the other. So the school can do speech evaluations, OT evaluations, psychological evaluations, and that's often a great budget-friendly place to start. When I say psychological evaluations, your mind probably immediately goes to mental health. And yes, they do look at some mental health concerns, but also this testing largely looks at potential learning differences. Let's say you have a kid you suspect has an attention deficit or ADHD. You can take them to your pediatrician and get a diagnosis. Generally, what a pediatrician does is observe some behavior in the office and then give you some forms to fill out, some rating scales, and gives the teachers some rating scales to fill out. And then they make a diagnosis based on that. How is that different from getting a diagnosis from a neuropsychologist? A neuropsychologist is going to do the same thing. Some behavior observations, some rating scales for you, some rating scales for the teacher. But then they're going to take it one step further and do testing that looks at possible learning differences because many times ADHD and other neurodivergent profiles are associated with learning challenges. So not only are they looking at behavior, but they also want to know about processing speed and working memory and phonemic awareness, all sorts of elements that do impact educational functioning and academic achievement. I want to make an important note here. I said that, yes, some types of neurodivergence can impact academic achievement and educational function, but a lot of neurodivergence does not impact intelligence. That means if we can get the right sorts of support in place, remember, we're going to reinforce and support those weak areas of wiring. A kid with slow processing speed may need extra time on tests. That's an example of an accommodation that we can make to help support them and their education. So it's important to know that neurodivergence and even developmental delays do not necessarily mean low intelligence. The neuropsychological assessment is much deeper and more extensive. It, it takes the school assessment and goes way deeper. As a result, it's way more expensive too. Many types of health insurance do offer coverage for this, so be sure to check there. When it comes to diagnosis, the neuropsychological evaluation is often considered the gold standard because it takes in all the factors. Deciding who you're going to see can depend on what sort of symptoms and behaviors you're seeing. We'll talk a little bit more about those when I answer a few questions that I had submitted to me. I do want to emphasize never be afraid of getting a second opinion because that gut feeling that you have is so incredibly valuable. If you get an answer that doesn't sit well with you, that doesn't make sense with you from any kind of professional, don't be afraid to get a second opinion. So after you get an evaluation, maybe you've done it through the school district. Maybe you have taken your child for a full neuropsychological assessment. Maybe you have taken your child to a developmental pediatrician, whatever it might be. However, you have gotten your second opinion. And I kind of think just like the general way to think of it is if you have a kid under five and you just have concerns that you can't quite put your finger on, I'd probably say go to the developmental pediatrician. If you have a kid that is in school, I would say maybe lean towards the school assessment and the neuropsychological. You could also have the developmental pediatrician in there too if you wanted. Remember the developmental pediatrician is someone that you have an ongoing relationship with. The school testing and the neuropsychology testing are kind of one and done type things. But never be afraid of getting a second opinion. So this testing may say that it is recommended for your child to get some kind of therapy, maybe speech therapy, maybe occupational therapy, 
special education services, maybe working with a reading specialist, an ABA therapist, maybe all of the above, because it is rarely one thing. Neurodiverse kids rarely fit into one box perfectly. Usually they have their toes dipped in a couple of the other boxes too. Remember that diagnoses are used to try to explain what the brain wiring looks like. And that brain wiring looks different in every kid. So sometimes it takes a couple diagnoses to really explain the wiring. So they might have a diagnosis of ADHD, but also have auditory processing challenges along with speech and language challenges and dyslexia. Maybe throw in a couple sensory processing challenges too. If you have a kid that has a lot of diagnoses, just remember these diagnoses combined are a way of describing your kid's wiring. They are not meant to predict or determine your child's future and remind yourself of that. And those labels really serve to help the professionals best support them. I know that the labels can be scary, but the labels help to guide the treatment plan. And the treatment plan can be overwhelming, especially if there are many different types of therapies that are recommended. How do you prioritize your time? How do you prioritize your money? Where do you get the money? Because some of the stuff is very expensive. I think as a parent, it can be really intimidating to know what the next best step is. I haven't taken one-on-one coaching clients in the past few years, namely because of childcare challenges with the pandemic and homeschooling my kids, which I no longer do. I should note for anyone new to the podcast, but starting in 2022, I'm going to be reopening my coaching practice, both in person and virtually. And I'm excited about the human interaction again, because while I love the podcast, I'm essentially talking to a wall. I know there are humans behind there listening, but I do miss that human connection. And in my coaching practice, I do just that. I sit down with parents who need support with child behavior, stress and overwhelm at home, or any sort of helping hand. And one thing that many parents need support with is exactly what we're talking about today. Processing what all this means, as well as looking at all the pieces of the puzzle to help make decisions about how to spend your time and money when you suspect developmental differences and or neurodivergence. Because the options are endless. I'll never forget walking the halls at a continuing education conference many, many years ago, seeing dozens and dozens of treatment options. There were hyperbaric oxygen chambers, numerous devices, interactive metronome, neurofeedback, dietary supplements, pharmaceuticals. There are lots of vendors who sell high-priced hope to parents of neurodiverse kids. And even with a PhD, it's basically a full-time job to weed through it all myself. I read something recently, I don't remember where it was, but it said that most parents of neurodiverse kids are working outside their pay grade when it comes to managing it all, the behavior, the academics, and the therapies. So if you're overwhelmed, that's why. I think about it like taxes. I'm very intimidated by taxes because I don't understand them at all. So I imagine it to be something like me being thrown into a busy accounting office during tax season, trying to do the taxes with absolutely no idea what I'm doing, working way outside of my pay grade. So if all of this feels overwhelming and exhausting to you, know that you're not alone in that. And don't be afraid to reach out for professional support. I had many, many questions on this topic submitted to me, and I'm going to try to take all of them after this one-minute break from today's sponsor. The sponsor for today is KiwiCo. The holidays are all about creating the magic of the season, and if you're anything like me, that doesn't come easy. Which is why I'm grateful that this year KiwiCo is making the holidays a little more hands-on and a little more fun for all of us by doing some of the legwork for me. 
The Maker Crate subscription from KiwiCo is perfect for first-time crafters or even experienced makers. We created colorful wrapping cloths using the ancient Indonesian art of batik, which was fun and interesting for the adults and the kids. KiwiCo ships everything right to your door, so there's no commitment and you can pause or cancel anytime. So turn your artistic visions into reality this holiday season with Maker Crate from KiwiCo. Get 50% off your first month plus free shipping with the code simple at kiwico.com. That's 50% off your first month at kiwico.com with the promo code simple. All right. I had a lot of questions submitted on this topic and I'm going to try to take as many as possible. I do want to say again, I'm talking to you all like I would talk to a friend. So take what resonates with you, leave what doesn't. This is not meant to be prescriptive or diagnostic. As with all things on the podcast, you may agree with me, you may disagree with me, and that's okay. All right, first question. Hi, Danae. I'm worried my almost seven-year-old suffers from dyslexia. I've seen signs, but hoped it was quote-unquote normal in terms of learning. Now I'm leaning into a hard no on that. How do I know when to seek help and or an evaluation? His father has a history of a hard time learning to read. Now's the time. But if you have a kid whose really only challenge that you're identifying at this point is that they're having a hard time learning to read, I would probably start with the school district. I would start with a school assessment. And if your child is in fact diagnosed with a reading disability or a reading disorder and or dyslexia, remember the schools don't generally call it dyslexia, your kid is going to need Orton-Gillingham or another structured, systematic, research-based methodology to teach them to read, but probably Orton-Gillingham. So as a parent, your job is advocating with the school to make sure that your kid gets Orton-Gillingham as soon as possible. They can learn to read. They just need systematic, direct instruction. Now, Orton-Gillingham is the theory that underlies the curriculum. So now, this is kind of confusing. Hang with me on this. So... There are lots of different types of curriculum that use the Orton-Gillingham theory underpinnings. There are lots of different variations of Orton-Gillingham. There's Wilson and Barton for kids with more profound or severe dyslexia. Then there's things like foundations and all about reading, which treat kids who don't have dyslexia or reading problems, programs that really benefit all kids. So depending on the severity, they may need different types of services. They may need a different presentation of Orton-Gillingham. For example, a mainstream program like Foundations maybe breaks down reading into 50 steps versus Barton is going to break it down into 1,000 steps. Those are just numbers I just randomly threw out there. But the different programs break it down into smaller pieces and different kids need it in smaller pieces. There are some kids with profound dyslexia that can't actually hear the difference between the sounds. And this is where auditory processing disorder comes into play sometimes. If you have a child that can't hear the difference between b, d, it becomes very hard to learn how to read and spell because to their ears, those sounds are the same. So some kids actually need support that looks a little bit more like speech therapy to help truly understand where in the mouth you're making the sound so they can understand how they sound differently. The b comes from your lips. The d comes from your tongue inside of your mouth. So like I said, there's a whole variety of different types of Orton-Gillingham. Now kids who go undiagnosed will often figure reading out later on, but 
it tends to be hard. It tends to be labor intensive if they don't get good explicit instruction in the early years. So can dyslexic kids learn to read without Orton-Gillingham, without a direct approach to teaching reading? Yes, they can. But having that good foundation can really support that process and to make reading something that they love and enjoy as they grow. All right, next one. It's about a four and a half year old boy. Curious what your thoughts are when you feel like something is wrong, but you don't know what's considered within normal or when there's actually something else going on. Our laid back pediatrician doesn't seem concerned, but it's a daily struggle and feels like it's getting worse as time goes on. I got a list of local therapists from our pediatrician, but I don't even know what to say when I call. He's perfectly behaved at school and in general, a very sweet child. So everyone has a hard time believing that he has 20 plus minute tantrums, often hitting, kicking, screaming, flailing, refusing any choices, even the ones he loves. He's been waking up two or three times a night recently, and we're at a loss. We're very tired. So one of the elements that is looked at in diagnosis is do symptoms present themselves in more than one setting? Now, this isn't across the board for all diagnoses, but a lot of diagnoses require that. It can't just be things that you're seeing at home. It has to be presenting at home and at school or at home and at daycare. If it's only presenting at home, parents have a tendency to do a lot of self-blame. And sometimes there are things that you can do to help support your kid better. Sometimes there are some things that you can change and improve within your parenting. Often there are. I mean, I think we can all grow and improve. But a kid like this who is perfectly behaved in school and then comes home and is just a wild mess, they may just be really good at masking and holding it all in at school. And when they get home, you get that soda bottle effect where they've been shaken up all day and you take the top off and it explodes. So I think I would continue to investigate this further. I'd probably look to get some support within your parenting. One thing that I recommend all the time is something called PCIT, parent-child interaction therapy, especially for a kid that's young, four and a half, whose concerns are primarily behavioral. That can be a really good place to start. At four and a half, you may not be looking at a diagnosis, and it's probably a bit young for a neuropsychological evaluation. So I'd find a developmental pediatrician. Something else I'd really like to look into more would be sensory sensitivities, because sometimes kids who are sensory sensitive can get really overstimulated all day long at school and then fall apart when they get home. Kind of on a similar note, a kid who is in a classroom setting where the work is not appropriate for their learning level, whether the work is too easy or too hard, those kids can hold it together all day and fall apart when they get home. So I'd look at this from two sides of the coin. You know, how can you help to better support him in the home doing something like PCIT, but also not ruling out the fact that even though you don't see challenges in school during the day, doesn't mean that he's not internally experiencing challenges during the school day. All right, next question. My five-year-old stopped sleeping approximately two years ago. She went from sleeping straight through the night alone to refusing to go to bed, waking up nightly for hours. Two years later, I'm still up for hours with her most nights. We've tried pretty much every specialist, play therapy, working with a sleep consultant that has a background in behavior therapy. She's strong-willed and has many episodes during the day that are hard to deal with. Tantrums, physically going after her sisters, refusal to participate in simple tasks. My husband attributes it to the lack of sleep, but I wonder if the lack of sleep is due to an undiagnosed issue. But her lashing out is limited to our home only, so I'm having a hard time convincing the school to evaluate her. So 
it says that she was sleeping great two years ago and then she just stopped, which it sounds like to me that there was this really profound shift in her in general, her sleep, her behavior, everything, everything seemed okay. And then all of a sudden it just changed. It says you've worked with every specialist imaginable. So I imagine you've already talked to your pediatrician. I'd probably talk to your pediatrician about the possibility of pandas. Pandas can be medically related and can cause sudden onset and major changes to personality and behavior. So definitely ruling that out if you haven't already. I would also want to look at a potential traumatic event that occurred around that shift, around that time. There are lots of different models and types of play therapy. Two ways to think about play therapy is sometimes play therapy is directive and sometimes it's non-directive. So non-directive play therapy is very open-ended. It's often used for kids who are working through traumatic events, kids with emotional challenges, It looks to an outsider a bit like open-ended, unstructured play. And then there's directive play therapy that's more focused on structured activities and skill building, that sort of thing. So if you've tried one play therapist, doesn't mean you've tried them all. Their approaches can be very, very different. Depending on what your child's needs are, they might need different types. I would also wonder if you've been to a neurologist, maybe looked at doing a sleep study, trying to get a better understanding if there could be something neurological going on that's impacting sleep. Because you're absolutely right in the assumption that a lack of sleep can impact behavior, not just for kids, but for parents too. I'm afraid labeling my child and having that label will define and limit them. But I also wonder if we will receive access to more appropriate resources and learn better strategies for helping my child if we do. I don't know what to do. We've felt there's been something off since this child was an infant and have seen this manifestation in extreme behavior since. We also worry about the safety of our other children due to the behavior of this child and the relationships that they build. Once again, you've got that gut feeling. Follow your gut. You didn't say how old your child is, but I would suggest starting with a developmental pediatrician. I assume that you've already talked to your pediatrician. If you haven't, then I would maybe look into going to a developmental pediatrician to talk more specifically about behavior and development. You can also request the school to evaluate if you're here in the U.S. If your child is getting older, school age, six, seven, you could look into doing a neuropsychological, especially if you feel like there are also learning challenges at play, maybe memory challenges. A kid who is really acting out like this may be under a lot of stress. Sometimes we see this sort of behavior with kids who have sensory processing challenges because the world is so intense and so overstimulating to them that they're constantly tired and exhausted and irritable. So I'd wonder about any sensory processing challenges or any sensory seeking behaviors too. Question was, can you point me in the right direction for auditory processing disorder and sensory processing disorder? So generally OTs are the ones that treat sensory processing disorder, but OTs can't really diagnose. OTs kind of stay within their own lane. OTs and speech pathologists kind of stay within their own lane, which is why I usually suggest having another professional that kind of oversees all of it. If you have a kid that's getting speech and then all of a sudden someone says, oh, you should probably get OT and you should probably get PT. Now you've become kind of a case manager who doesn't really know much about case management. So getting another professional in to help you decide where to spend your time, where to spend your money can be really helpful. 
Auditory processing disorder is only diagnosed by an audiologist, and in particular, an audiologist who has training in auditory processing disorder. Not all audiologists are trained to evaluate for auditory processing disorder. Auditory processing disorder may show up like it looks like your kid can't hear you. It looks like they have hearing loss, but then their hearing is normal. A lot of times these kids have trouble hearing in noisy situations. They miss a lot, have a hard time following directions. Symptoms can look a lot like ADHD. And sometimes it co-occurs with ADHD, where kids have both auditory processing disorder and ADHD, and a few sensory processing issues thrown into. All right, next question. Would love to know when is an ideal age to have a child evaluated for ADHD? We're in the process of evaluating my son who's in second grade. However, we've heard that a lot of boys tend to mature a lot from second to third grade. So now, I would say now is the time. So ADHD tends to show up earlier. Most parents who have kids with ADHD say that these symptoms have been long, long occurring and they've seen it going on for a long time. A lot of professionals want to wait until kids have grown to at least six or seven to diagnose and to start treatment, especially when treatment is a stimulant, when it's medication. I'm pretty sure the American Academy of Pediatrics recommends waiting until six to start stimulants for ADHD, but I know that a lot of psychiatrists and pediatricians do prescribe earlier too. The reason for this being more of a later diagnosis is that kids do grow a lot and change a lot when it comes to their behavior and it comes to their attention span in these years. Impulsivity does tend to fade, but again, I'd go back to your gut feeling. I'd look at your family history, and if you have a kid that is six or seven, I'd push for the evaluation, either through the school district or if financial resources permit a neuropsychological evaluation. That is really the best way to get a comprehensive viewpoint of what areas of life that these things are affecting your child. 50% of kids who have a parent with ADHD will also have ADHD. So if you as a parent have ADHD, diagnosed or undiagnosed, your kids have a 50% chance of having it too. So keep that in mind when you're giving consideration to all this. Now, I say now is the time you have a second grader because you're right, there is a big shift in third grade. Kids do mature a lot. They are moving from early childhood into middle childhood. And it can bring about behavior changes. But at the same time, it also brings about a huge increase in academic demands. So a lot of kids who had never previously had a problem with academics start to have a problem with academics in third grade. Maybe they've been getting by until now. But once the demands increase, the demands on attention, the demands on language, the demands on reading, a lot of academic problems tend to start to surface and become more obvious right around third grade, right around nine years old. So evaluating now to see if you need to get some extra supports in before third grade. Another question, do we trust our gut when everyone says everything is okay? How do I even find a professional to diagnose something like dysgraphia? Dysgraphia is a writing disorder. So I just can't get over how all of these questions start with my gut says dot, 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 <laughs> because it is, it's, it's a real thing. Your gut is a real thing and it's just not something that should be ignored. So dysgraphia is generally going to be diagnosed by a school psychologist or by a neuropsychologist. Um, a school psychologist, again, isn't going to call it dysgraphia. They're probably going to call it a writing disability or a writing disorder. Um, but a neuropsychologist might call it dysgraphia. Doesn't mean it's two different things. It just means it's called two different things. But I would start with one of those. An OT often is a treatment option for dysgraphia. But it's really good to have that evaluation to know where your starting point is before you go into treatment. 
so you know if it's making a difference or if you're barking up the wrong tree and you need a different type of treatment. It's good to have that baseline evaluation to know where you're starting from. Also, OTs do their own evaluations too. All right, next question. Which professional to ask? Pediatrician, school psychologist, private psychologist, neurobiologist, or some kind of ologist? So I went over this a little bit. Um, And I guess I'm going to say it again in a new way because it is so confusing to know who to go to. If you have concerns about your kid's academic performance and about their attention and about their social skills and their ability to make friends, kind of across the board concerns, I'd probably go to a neuropsychologist that can see all the pieces of the puzzle. You could also go to a developmental pediatrician as well, particularly if the kid is under six. Your general pediatrician is always a wonderful starting point, but you may need to go out from there to get a more specialized opinion. All right, next up, my six-year-old has low muscle tone and hyperflexibility as well as speech delays and some sensory sensitivities. He's literally scared of everything. I know it's likely a result of these things he's dealing with, but should I start with getting him into therapy for anxiety now or wait until he outgrows it? So anxiety can be very much related to the way a kid experiences the world. So a kid with sensory sensitivities can be very scared because everything seems so loud, so bright, so jarring, and they're constantly overstimulated. And the result can be anxiety. When you're thinking about treating this anxiety, putting a kid like this in talk therapy or really even in play therapy can be helpful for some things. It can be helpful because it can teach kids about the zones of regulation. It can teach them how to manage the big emotions. But also remembering that this underlying anxiety is probably coming through your child's world experience, how they feel in their shoes, how they feel in this world. And that's not really something you can talk your way through. Of course, talk therapy and play therapy can help to support that. But I think really getting at the underlying challenges, which are sensory, is probably a better way to go. So I'd probably start with OT. But I'd also remember that sensory sensitivities are on a spectrum. We all have some degree of sensory sensitivities. Some of these sensitivities impair us from living a typical life. And if that's the case, if the sensory sensitivities are impairing life, you're unable to leave the house, if these sensitivities are debilitating, then yes, definitely getting treatment. But also consider making accommodations. You know, a kid that everything looks really bright and doesn't want to go outside because the sun hurts his eyes, get him sunglasses. I think we always need to consider that we can try to support them through therapies, but we can also support them through accommodations too. If you have a kid that gets really fearful and upset in crowds, try to avoid the crowds. It's okay to make accommodations like that. As your kid grows, those sensitivities may decrease, but they may avoid crowds when they're older too. And maybe that'll be okay. When I was taking these questions on Instagram, I didn't realize that I had so many and I told everyone that I was going to respond to them. So this is turning into a really, really long episode. Um, (laughs) Sorry about that. Okay. So next question, my kid has been to OTs and pediatricians and now is repeating kindergarten. I've tried contacting our local school district to get official 504 plans and official diagnosis, but I've been given the runaround. I need to know where to go. I suspect anxiety, ADHD, maybe PICA too. PICA, PICA, I can never remember which, how to say that one. Um, but basically, basically that means eating non-food items. At six and a half, nobody wants to diagnose, which is fine, but I need accommodations. 
I think you're doing the right thing by pushing the school. Keep pushing. They need to do evaluations. You have to submit it in writing via email, via written letter. Submit, I request my child to be assessed for special services. But again, the school isn't really going to diagnose. You're probably going to have to go to another professional to get a diagnosis. So since you're not exactly sure where to go, I would say go to a developmental pediatrician because they can help to point you in the path that you need to be. And again, it's good to have someone that you're going to see that's going to follow your kid and have regular appointments so that they can monitor the ongoing development, all the areas of development, especially if you have a kid that you suspect is a more complex case. Is getting a diagnosis worth it? i.e. the time, cost, stress, emotional trauma, if you're already researching and figuring out the best way to help your child and implementing those things. In Canada, there's very little funding that goes to child behavioral diagnosis, and I'm not sure it's worth it in the sense that the only thing that changes is now this kid has a label. Does that make sense? Yeah, you know, I'm not that familiar with Canada. I think here in the U.S. that the diagnosis can help support getting more services at school. I don't know if that's the case in Canada. Um, if you're homeschooling, I think the diagnosis becomes less important. I think a diagnosis can help you as a parent to better understand what your kid's needs are. It can help a kid to better understand themselves. I've heard lots of stories of adults who have had diagnosis as kids and their parents never told them. They kind of kept it hush hush, even from them. And almost all the time, the child's or the now adult wishes that they had been told as a child and wishes that they had been informed because they knew they felt like something was different within them, but they didn't know what it was. So having that validation that in fact, they are neurodiverse and that's why they experience the world differently, that that actually can provide some comfort for kids too. All right. Would love if you would talk about the difference between language and speech and pronunciation delays. My daughter is possibly in the latter camp. She's just a little hard to understand. Her teacher brought it up, but suggested waiting till spring to see if it improves. She's almost four. So articulation delays tend to be easier to treat, I would say, than language delays. I'm not a speech pathologist. I don't even know if I should be using that word. I feel like I'm talking outside of my competency. Um, but in general, articulation delays are not necessarily related to later learning differences. They can be, but they're not as related as language delays. If you have a kid with other types of language delays, receptive language delays, expressive language delays, just a hard time understanding what other people are saying, a hard time processing, those things are going to be more likely to be related to later learning differences and later challenges down the road. Sometimes just pronouncing like your S's and your R's, that sort of thing. Those things tend to be more short-term. I've homeschooled my 10-year-old all the way up so far, and I'm pretty sure she's dyslexic. I'm a certified teacher. What are my next steps? Or are we good because she's getting individualized instruction at home? You know, I think it really depends. Um, I don't think it would hurt to get an evaluation through the school district so that she would better understand her challenges because you are homeschooling her now, but you might not always be. You know, she may go to college um, and kids that need accommodations for like, you know, the SATs and ACTs, they benefit from having that testing done and having an IEP or a 504 plan in place so that they can use those accommodations on testing to get ready for college. And they even take those accommodations with them to college. So so it could be worth your time to make sure that your child is going to be supported going forward and to really better understand the way that she's challenged. Because if she is dyslexic, there's a chance that her kids might be dyslexic too. And she needs to know the signs and symptoms to look out for so that she can better support her kids. She might not be a teacher. She might not have known the things that you know and that you were able to spot when you were teaching her. 
Somebody else wrote, I've talked to so many people who waited to seek out help because their child's teacher hadn't mentioned anything and then they regretted waiting. Teachers are so wonderful, but have so many students and may not always be the ones to pick up things. You're right. Sometimes teachers have a lot of kids and the more subtle things like inattentive ADHD, which basically means the kid is not disruptive. They're just kind of sitting there sort of in la-la land, not able to attend and tune in. Sometimes things like that can be really hard for teachers to see if they have a lot of kids. Um, And again, like I talked about, sometimes it can be really scary for teachers to bring these things up. So if you're a parent who has concerns, start the conversation. All right, next question. We've talked about having my son evaluated for ADHD, but we aren't sure if it's too early. He's five. I have ADHD and I was diagnosed at 13. I've often wondered if there's a benefit to knowing earlier to build up a toolkit or if too early comes with too many labels. Thank you. So I think you have the gut feeling and you have the family history part going on here. So I would say, yeah, pursue this, get some evaluations. You could see a developmental pediatrician at five for another opinion. Generally speaking, the most effective, not the only effective, but the most effective treatment for ADHD is stimulants. And a lot of people are really afraid of stimulants and hesitate to get an ADHD diagnosis because they think it means stimulants. I just encourage you take it one step at a time, right? Don't not get the ADHD diagnosis because you don't want to do stimulants one step at a time, you know, figure out what your kids needs are, figure out how to best support them and be open to whatever that might be. But at five, it might not mean putting a label on him. It might mean just looking deeper at what areas does he need support? Which wires need strengthened? And how do you strengthen those? Next, how to weed out professionals with outdated views like girls don't have ADHD or he makes eye contact so he's not autistic. Yeah, I mean, I think you just need to find a new new professional because <laughs> those are very outdated views. So if your gut tells you that a professional is not up to date or is not using a research-based practice, not serving your family well, not a good fit for your kid. Do not be afraid to say peace out and find another professional. Not every professional is going to be right for your family, even if they have all the qualifications. And you're absolutely right. It's really important that professionals have the latest research. You'll notice in this episode, I didn't speak much to autism spectrum disorders. I used to work a lot with autism spectrum disorders, but it's been 10 years and the diagnostic process has changed a lot. So much has changed within this community and I am not up on the most recent research. And that's important to consider when you're talking to any professional. Not all OTs are trained in sensory integration therapy. So just because they have an OT after their name doesn't mean that they're going to be well-suited to serve your kid's sensory challenges. It's always okay to question professional credentials. That's part of your job as an advocate, as a parent. Next up, working with our nine-year-old son, he's in fourth grade. He's always struggled in school. He has a speech impediment and has had therapy to work on it. His reading, spelling are all a struggle for him. Do you think we should have a psychological evaluation done for learning disabilities? Don't know where to start. Yes. So if you haven't already done the school testing, you could do it through the school, request the special education testing through the school in writing, or you could go to a neuropsychologist if you have the finances available to do that. That's going to give you a more thorough evaluation of all the areas. I do think a good evaluation would help you to connect all the pieces of the puzzle. Next one is, I look forward to hearing your thoughts on this topic. My kids were speech delayed and we have since discovered dyslexia, dysgraphia with ADHD. I wish I had known that speech delays can be an indicator of dyslexia. 
Yes, speech delays can be an indicator of dyslexia. Not always, but they can be. And I do wish that more speech therapists were more forthcoming about that. I think there is this fear around not wanting to scare parents, but that's not really my jam. I just would prefer a speech therapist say to me, hey, your kid has these speech delays and they do put him or her at higher risk for having dyslexia later. So these are the warning signs of dyslexia. You can watch out so that if you do spot them, you can make sure that they get the right type of reading instruction that they need so that they can thrive. Because a kid with dyslexia who's taught with something other than Orton-Gillingham, with something other than a direct approach to reading, is going to have a harder time reading, may feel bad about themselves, may hate reading. It can profoundly impact their self-esteem. And eventually they're probably going to have to learn how to read in a whole new way again. So if you can just find out early, teach them the right way from the beginning, you may be able to avoid some of that struggle. So yes, I think that professionals should make these kind of warning signs clearer. But you know, parents are so anxious. I mean, I'm one of those anxious parents. I'm not like speaking about you all. Like I am one of those parents too, that... We are hesitant not to scare parents, and we don't want them to overthink it. We don't want them to turn to the Dr. Google. So it's this fine line, this delicate balance that we have to, to find with over-informing and under-informing. And I think that's, that's a hard balance to strike. Next up, if you are considering a professional evaluation, how do you talk to your kids about what it is that you're taking them to do? I have an almost eight-year-old who is incredibly bright, sensitive, attuned. I also think he's anxious, has trouble controlling his anger, wonder about sensory processing, but I don't know how to approach him without making him feel like something is wrong or he's not living up to some standard. All right. A little bit of tough love here. Your kid already knows. He already knows there's something different about him. He probably wants to know what that means just as much as you do. If you say he's incredibly bright, sensitive, and attuned, and he has these problems controlling his anger, has a problem with sensory processing, He's been able to size up the fact that he experiences the world differently than other kids. And very likely, he already feels like something's wrong with him. Because kids can make that self-assessment even if we never say it, even if we never take them to a professional. So don't worry about planting that seed because that seed can grow. And actually, I would almost say that that seed may be more likely to grow if you don't get the assessment. So I would start by talking with him about neurodiversity. There's a whole lot of kids out there who have different kinds of brains. That means their brains are wired differently. They see the world and they experience the world in different ways. I'm kind of wondering if maybe you're neurodivergent. Sometimes you have a hard time controlling your anger and you get nervous about things. So I'm going to take you to a specialist who's going to do some testing. Don't worry, none of it's going to hurt. So we can find out more about how your brain works to see if there's any ways that we can help you and better support you. So be honest and tell it like it is. I would be particularly interested to find out if this is a 2E kid, a twice exceptional kid, which means that he's both gifted and has a disability. All right, my last question. I have four kids who are eight, five, five, and nine months. We suspect that our boy twin is headed for an ADHD diagnosis when he goes to kindergarten next year. We're seriously considering enrolling them in a Montessori school that goes until sixth grade because he does so well in that environment. However, I wonder if the local school would have better options if he does end up having a diagnosis. 
I'm also wondering if we keep him in a Montessori setting where he will thrive, eventually will it be a disservice when we have to throw him to the wolves into public school in seventh grade? All right. So all the Montessori people are probably going to come for me with this answer. (laughs) Montessori isn't necessarily right for every kid. I love Montessori. Montessori can serve neurodiverse kids, especially when you have Montessori teachers who are especially trained and have experience working with neurodiverse kids in that sort of environment. But the nature of Montessori is that it's spiral. You cover things and then you cover other things and you come back to the things you covered before. And kids with ADHD often have challenges with working memory. So if you have a kid with ADHD or ADHD tendencies that that has a hard time with memory and retention and following directions, they may need a setting where the teaching is more direct and more repetitive because they need to hear things more than once, especially if they're inattentive and they miss things. They're going to need to hear things over and over and over again in order to really get it locked in. When I say a kid may have trouble following directions, often we can assume that's just a compliance thing. They choose to be defiant and not follow directions, which does happen. But a lot of times kids have a hard time following directions due to language challenges, due to processing challenges. They're not actually able to process what the request was and respond to it appropriately. So I do think that Montessori can provide a lot of movement opportunities, a lot of child-led opportunities to let kids go deeper on the things that they're interested in. And those things can really cater to ADHD kids. But I think when you have kids with ADHD who have challenges with working memory and working with and challenges with retention of information, Montessori may not be the best option for them. And that's when that neuropsychological evaluation will come into play. The ADHD diagnosis that you get from a pediatrician is going to be based on your observations of his behavior at home and then the teacher's observations of his behavior at school. It's going to be less about testing all of the other elements of his brain. So in this situation, I would say neuropsychological evaluation or school psychology evaluation, but I'd probably wait until he's six because there are certain tests that can't be done until age six. Okay. I think I got to all the questions. (laughs) Um, So again, I want to reiterate, this is by no means definitive, right? I am not an expert on all of these things. This is what I would say to a friend if I was having a conversation with a friend. These are the things that I would share with a friend, suggestions I would make to a friend. There are so many, many other things to consider in all of these situations. These are merely starting off points. I'm hoping that when you hear me talk through these situations, you'll see a little bit more about the decision-making process and about where my brain goes. And you'll probably also see a little bit about how this is probably above your pay grade if your background is not in child development, not in education, not in pediatrics. It's a lot. It's a lot to wrap your head around. So don't be afraid to seek out professional help to make sense of it all. You are the expert on your child, but it can be helpful to have other professionals help you see what your options are. And like I said, it's all very scientific, but at the same time, not very scientific. A lot of trial and error involved. And like I always say, if some of this stuff resonates with you, take it. If it doesn't, leave it. As always, thanks so much for tuning in. And I hope this has been helpful and enjoyable, albeit long. (laughs) Thanks again and have a good one.